this podcast, Strange, Rare, and Peculiar, is for kind of those in the know about homeopathy, deepening your knowledge, bringing you more information about what you need to know, and maybe what you can leave aside about homeopathy. Homeo what? Homeo what? folks we're underway good morning here we go good afternoon hello and good evening you have a very squeaky chair i know it's not as loud as you're slurping though but listen we're in my office <sighs> terrible i'm gonna try to stay still poor podcast practice it kind of is <laughs> oh dear i'm gonna practice quietness in my body right yeah good luck with that <laughs> this is mcfidget McFidget. Yeah. Miss gesticulation. Oh, Lord. Um, uh, so, today... Today. I, can I just say that I look forward very much to this moment um, each week. Same. Yeah. So much so that we had to do an extra one on the 4th of July. Or on <laughs> July. Because we had a cancellation. Yeah, we had a meeting. It was on Monday night. We had a meeting that didn't happen, and it's like, well... Let's do a podcast. And we got to answer people's questions. Oh, which reminds me. So we there was a conversation going on in our podcast Slack channel about whether or not there should be some function of communication opened up. So we did. And so what you will find is, and I only looked at it in one platform, and I can't remember which one, but you now have an opportunity to post questions. It saves a step. So it sort of opens up a conversation. Mm. Nice. I think that could be really fun. I got a, an email today from Bill Sherman about something that we spoke about. President in, of the HPUS. Um, and our about, friend. Uh, yeah, a question yeah. that came up, yeah. Oh, yeah? Mm. Is it something? Uh, it's it's strictly confidential. So why did you bring it up in a public setting? <laughs> Just to drive me nuts yeah, so totally. I can't ask? That's not right. <laughs> you should see his face. You I'll should face see here. your face. Oh, I can't believe it. I'm not going to so be able good. to concentrate now. All right. Now, um, I have a proposition. I believe that our conversation today should really be resting on the question of stronger similar disease. I mean, we're this is hashtag an organon moment. Well, that's... Uh, I thought that was uh, the two podcasts ago. Yeah. Podcast. Yeah. Well, no, but this is the continuation where we said we were going to pick up with those aphorisms... And I was, just a minute ago, the reason I had to get onto my computer was because there is a very, um, I think, important part of the stronger similar disease section or aphorisms in the organon mm. that is the way in which explaining homeopathy to the general public, not so much the general public, but you were talking about like the medical public and how you do that, right? So I was... No, no, no. Yeah, I I know I did say that. And yeah, yeah, I still hold to that. But no, what I love about these aphorisms is that this is Hahnemann's very clear way to the public of explaining how homeopathy works. Yeah. It is. It's a very simple metaphor. Yeah. Simile, metaphor, whatever. And uh, it holds good. I love it. Yeah. In a way, um, you know, because at the outset, Harleman's saying, you don't need to know how homeopathy works. Please stop. Just 
you know, let's focus on the empirical phenomena. Right. You know, that's... Here, that is, uh, by the way, aphorism 28 is basically mechanism of action. Just leave it to the experts. He says... But but he also says it right at the beginning in aphorism 1. That's what I'm saying. He says in aphorism 1... No need for speculation. Well, but aphorism one, aside from highest ideal of cure, because in the footnote to aphorism one, he's really talking about the, the what was happening in medicine of his time, which was the attempt to create systems. But there, it was a creation of systems of medicine that were not founded on a principle, right? So, right. so Hahnemann, because of where he sits historically, he's in sort of a funny. Well, I what the I think he was born at exactly the right point in time because he starts his sort of medical career with everything firmly grounded in Hippocratic ideas and ideals, right? And then he moves forward to the end of his life, There, you know, through sort of the last part of his life, all the advances, and then it becomes this sort of biomedical extravaganza, mm-hmm. and then we all know what happens there. But... but I think the footnote to aphorism one is actually about don't try to create out of thin air systems that don't have a grounding. And then he goes on to say that homeopathy is based on universal laws. Totally agree. Okay. But I think it's relevant for our purposes here because then he has to, you know, in the aphorisms you're talking about, Go back, because it is an important question of his day, and it's a critical question of our day. Oh, totally. It's critical, actually, myself. Oh, I think it is, because people who make stuff up are in violation of aphorism one. Yeah, but I mean, no, we're (laughs) we're not talking about the same thing. Oh, sorry. I'm talking about the the how does it work question. Yeah. uh, You're talking about systems. But that's what the footnote to aphorism one is about. But the how does it work question in 2080 says, quote, this natural law of cure has authenticated itself to the world in all pure experiments and all genuine experiences. Therefore, it exists as fact. Scientific explanations for how it takes place do not matter very much, and I do not attach much importance to attempts made to explain it. The following view, however, is verifiably the most probable since it is based on nothing but empirical premises. Right. So that's his intro. 28 is the intro into sort of similars and the concept of the stronger similar. What Hahnemann is doing, I mean, this, this section, I think, is just critical, you know? One thing that, that I think has thwarted homeopathy from the beginning of time is not the idea of the principle of similars. Because similars is used in medicine all the time, inadvertently, but effectively, platinum chemotherapy as an example, right? That Lance Armstrong received platinum chemotherapy when he had testicular cancer. It's like, well, we know that the remedy platinum has an affinity for the testes. We know what its mental and emotional state looks like, right? You know, put the two together. And anyway, but so similars are used throughout medicine, intentionally or unintentionally. Yeah. And fine, but, but where it became problematic for people was in the idea of the minimum dose, right? And that has and that caused all sorts of problems from the beginning of time. But but what Hahnem is talking about here in, you know, from 28 to whatever, 4950 around complicated disease is a, is about similars and how it works in these universal laws. Right? Do you want to just take a second though to talk about the the 28 and the the fact that he's saying 
I do not attach much importance to attempts made to explain it in terms of mechanism of action and the f- and research focus. Well, he's you know at a time when empiricism was not a dirty word, he was he's a straight up experiential and experimental guy, and therefore the effect is more important than the how did that work, mm-hmm. and that is something which is being popular, not popular, popular, not popular. For me, right now, it's critical. Yeah. I don't, I, you know, in 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 a in a modern context, if you think about the challenges that we have as as a medical modality, um, as a whole healing system, then I, I personally believe that the emphasis on that how does it work is um, has been overcooked. It's taken the oxygen from the room. There's a whole lot of really smart minds that are, you know, focused on some of those questions, but they're not homeopaths. They might be homeopathy adjacent. They're not jobbing homeopaths. So I've always been a jobbing homeopath that... Wait, do you think that all the mechanism of action people, none of them are actual homeopaths? I guess they're physicists first. They're physicists they might be homeopaths chemists. second. No? I can't think of one. Okay. They're adjacent. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, but not, pra- not practicing. Yeah. Not that I know of. Um, I, this, I was at this lecture once with uh, a, a, a German-Australian guy, Jürgen Schulte, and he uh, he he started talking. He says, I can demonstrate, he, he said something very, it was a smart thing to say to get to his audience. I can demonstrate using conventional physics and chemistry how it's possible to store information in a water molecule. <laughs> like he's, That was clear. Uh-huh. And then he started talking more and then pff, totally right. lost it. I had no idea. That's and how I feel with some of those lectures. I want to I want to feel really smart, like I can go and carry on and listen and understand, but right. I, I'm and lost at a certain point. And it's really interesting because when you feel lost, when you're a kind of, I mean, I would not consider myself, well, I'm a bit smart, you know. Yeah, don't sell, your, don't sell yourself short. I can't even say it. <laughs> short. <laughs> don't sell yourself But it's short. funny what happens when people start talking and you cannot follow. Yeah. And it's either because they're idiots or you're an idiot. And I don't, I don't think I, either is accurate. No. And so um, I, I found it frustrating. It's a bit like reading Jung or reading, I don't know, someone that, you know, he's saying something and it's very impenetrable and it's hard to follow. Anyway, I think it's exactly the same. The people that want answers as to the how does it work yeah. are the how does it work people. Yeah. And they are not the people that I've spent most of my time with either in practice in homeopathy or in my public health um, world, life, with those folks that make decisions about public health, they're not interested. They, if a person responsible for a spreadsheet and the allocation of funds yeah. is interested in the mechanism of action, then there's something wrong, right? They're not. They just aren't. Public health um, officials have. I mean, it's hard to. I mean, believe it or not, I don't think it's well respected in in our profession, actually, but most public health folks that I've met have big hearts. Yeah, totally. And while they might have been steeped in the allopathic conventional medical world, um, they are, they, they, uh, there is meaning in their work, yeah. you know? That, that's very important. And so they're not interested in that. What they're interested in is that it works. And then sometimes asking, again, allopathic or conventional questions. Yeah what drug is good for this condition. Right. That's a very allopathic question. But, um, and, and so a, 
I, the, the, the public health person, the actuarial in the hospital, the person that's responsible for budgets is more interested in uh, how the hell can we get a result cheaper. Right. And that is a different question. That's a whole different research focus. So and that's the, I mean, that's the premise behind what, with our research office at Home Research, what right. we're, you know, getting these large-scale outcomes-based research initiatives off the ground and having, you know, through the, the PGRN, the Practitioner Generated Research Network, sort of having having a space where everyone can participate by by contributing meaningful data into a system that's, you know, easy and efficient to use means that we can turn that data around into what we believe is really important to um, to the folks who are making decisions about what goes into the formulary yeah. of what's allowed to be, you know, disseminated in a hospital setting. I mean, the, what's what's sort of interesting is like it, all you have to do is watch a couple of TV commercials about some of the medications that are on the market, or talk to somebody who works in, you know, in this in um, the um, areas around risk with surgical equipment and and the risks associated with you know things like uh, you know anything involving sort of x-rays and the you know technology that you know radiotherapies that penetrate the you know into the interior of the body and it's like you know there's there's always that risk benefit analysis whereas with homeopathy the 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 sort of cleanness and and um sort of purity with how it works makes it almost unbelievable. Mm. You know what I mean? Like you'd have to dig really hard to find n- negative effects of properly used homeopathy. I mean, you have to work really hard using it improperly to cause yeah. great harm, right? So it's like... No, it's a really well-made point. I, 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 and what I'm saying is, is not that we should not have our feet held to the fire about our results. Yeah, 100%. We need to be robust in the... In the, in the method by which we ask questions yeah. and the, the way we go about answering those questions and, the, and importantly, the way we write up those questions. We, we're not, we're not, why should we be held to a different standard, a lower standard right. than any other profession? But in reality, that, we're held to a higher standard. Oh, yeah. I mean, yes and no. Okay, I fair. I, can, <laughs> I don't think so. No, well, in, in, right. in a way. I mean, but it's anyway, a complex question. But, the, but to go back to that question, which is... What is the question? Well, the question was, you've totally forgotten the question. Of course I have by now. Well, just keep up, keep up. Keep up, keep up. But um, because you said, well, are you happy with the way that Hahnemann is emphasized, that, that, that clearing of the throat? And I think it's perfect. Yeah. I, I think, you know, that could well be almost the first aphorism in the organon, in a way, because it's like, everybody just calm down, bring your, bring your brains and your intellect, but not, not, not about the how. Because then what he does is he gives metaphors. Totally. Right? And, and we I talked about some of them last time because we talked when we were talking about like well, the, we, the luminous. Yeah, but I mean Jupiter. let's do that a bit more systematically, because I think that, you know, I would need to there's there's the, the light of Jupiter. Yeah. There's the The snuff. <laughs> the snuff. There's the um the, terrified soldier. Yeah. And the, and, and, then, and then he talks about the stoic German people. The, well, right. Yeah. That the music. Anyway, we'll get to that footnote in a second. Can I? I want to throw in sort of a side question to shake all this up and to get us thinking on sort of from a not even a ten thousand foot view, but like view from space, right? So it's summer. 
which means that I get to, in my early morning hours, go back to my alchemy research, hmm. which, of course, is a reason to get out of bed every morning. It really is. And so, you know, starting off the summer with going back in to revisit this research to take it to the next level, one of the things that I've been working through is this idea that, oh, and just for a little background, so, you know, part, part of what I've been working on is sort of answering the question, what the hell is homeopathy? And over the course of decades of, of research, attaching it to the origins of chemistry, which of course are inclusive of alchemy and so forth. And it's a very scientific pursuit. Anyway, one of the things that's kind of interesting is that one of the foundational premises of alchemy is that it's about sort of speeding up time or speeding up a response or pushing through a process. Yeah, this idea of transmutation is you can sort of incite something to change. So we know this within homeopathy where, yeah, somebody can have, you know, um, a croupy cough and will get over it on their own in, you know, three days. But you might be able to give a remedy and push that process through from stage one to stage two of the suffering and get them out of it in a much quicker time. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Okay. There's another premise, which... Oh, there's a very famous Indian homeopath that says, I can show you how effective <clears throat> homeopathy is. You can have a cold, and you can not do anything, and you'll get better in one week, or you can use homeopathy, and you'll be fine in seven days. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, this person's a homeopath? A yeah, pro-homeopathy person? About, it's okay. not about homeopathy. It's about a cold. Okay. You know, and yeah. Like, you know those people that say, "Oh, I'll take twenty-five remedies." Oh, right. Got yeah. it. Yeah. Buy the <laughs> oxalococcinum at Costco so that you have, you know, basically a wheelbarrow full of. Yeah. How do you pronounce that, by the way? How Os- do you say? Oxalococcinum. And I say oxalococcinum. I'm sure I say it wrong. Oxalococcinum. Oxalococcinum. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, but going back to this other premise, which is. Alchemy is not just one thing, right? It takes into account so many um, threads because it's about this idea of evolutionary process, mm. yeah? And, and an accompaniment or an assist to bring something through a process, yeah? And so it takes into account, it's, it's discerning about any new information that it brought in over the thousands of years of evolution. So in other words, if you look at medical alchemy, which is the through line that I pull Hahnemann through, yeah. and it just means that, you know, there are all sorts of traditions ahead of time. It goes back to aphorism one, yeah. right? And and but what is important is to look at anything that is being introduced and discern whether or not it's appropriate to bring into what you do going forward. So in other words, and this is, I hope I can say this clearly enough because I've been trying to formulate this question, but mm-hmm. we talk about homeopathy as if it's, there, there's sort of two conversations that happen in homeopathy. One is Hahnemann did everything and it's based on universal laws, therefore don't do anything more. Mm-hmm. Stop it, it's 125 remedies, da, da, da. And then there are people who are like making it up out of whole cloth, right? Doing, you know, doing provings from ways that they have no idea what line they might be crossing and doing it and da 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 Okay. Like anything, I think it's somewhere in between. And I think there's something interesting about the evolution of time, the evolution of knowledge, yeah, and how we have to incorporate that knowledge, that knowledge base into something ancient, 
right? How do we add something with discernment to an already perfect system when we're talking about homeopathy? Mm-hmm. And that's part of the one of the conversations in the history of alchemy is the ways in which different alchemists got off track by adding sort of the wrong things. And I think Hahnemann was right place, right time. Yeah. Now looking at it and saying, okay, what do we add in now that we have so much more knowledge? I mean, in Hahnemann's time, we didn't have a knowledge of the interior of the body like we do now. We didn't understand the chemical constituencies, say, in a snake venom, right? Snake venom containing a lot of zinc. Well, okay, so do you, at what point, do you take something in a holistic way? And at what point do you use it in a reductionistic way? Anyway, as I look at aphorism 28 and mechanism of action, sorry, that was a long wind up to say, while I think it's, I think that the mechanism of action question is where, like, I love the expression you use, takes all the oxygen out of the room. It's like, it has, it has commanded so much of the conversation about homeopathy, mm-hmm. when in reality, we need to be, you know, we need to get this medicine out there with outcomes. Okay, that's really good. But one of the other things that's happening in alchemy today is you've got these incredible scientists and physicists who are reproving these alchemical recipes to show that these ancient people were not just, you know, in, you know, with their alembics and, you know, coal on their faces, wasting time, but rather were empirical scientists setting a precedent for the work we do today. And because of the, the, I'm going to use the term holistic, but because of the implications of everything they were attempting to do, right, put life into an organism that has lost life in terms of a medical alchemist, that they're, they're showing that there's validity in this process. And in fact, at different universities, right? There are people who are replicating things. So Columbia University has, I think it's called the Making and Knowing Project, where they're going back and with modern day capacity replicating these experiments. Okay. So I say this because I I wonder if, as you know how like with the introduction of AI, it's like everybody's saying time and technology are moving so much more quickly than ever. Yeah. There's, in my mind, I feel like Everything that's been happening, even if we feel like some of it is misplaced energy in terms of how we could have moved the needle forward, that it's all necessary because isn't it possible that all these things could converge and that the the recognition of the science might hit right at the sweet spot when, you know, I mean, we could look at it through the negative and say when the, you know, Pluto moving through Capricorn caused the dissolution of all the big infrastructures of, you know, of the medical model just to throw that out there. but Or we could say it in a very positive way that these things are converging because it's the time. Yeah, like that Victor Hugo quote I love. Mm. There's nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come. Anyway, what, <laughs> that's, a, that's huge in my mind. Yeah. What do you think? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Well, I don't have any response to that. I think... Um, no, I mean, I'm intrigued and interested. Okay. Mm. So, what does he actually say about similars? He says a lot of things about similars. Um, and I think that, you know, there he comes at it from two perspectives. 
One perspective is the one you talked about before, which was very metaphorical, right? So that's the, um, here, uh, here we go. So this is um, footnotes to 25. So 25, when uh, in aphorism 25, Hahnemann says, in all careful experiments, pure experience, the only and infallible oracle of the medical art, um, teaches us the following. A medicine which, in its impingement on healthy human bodies, has proven that it is able to engender the greatest number of symptoms similar to those found in the case of disease to be cured, does also, in properly potentized and diminished doses, rapidly, though, and permanently lift the totality of symptoms of this disease state. It lifts the entire disease that is present, transforming it into health. That's that alchemical idea of moving something forward, right? All medicines without exception cure those diseases whose symptoms most nearly resemble their own and leave none of them uncured. Now, we could spend an entire three days talking about this with, with regard to pathology, right? We can like replay the entire Herring and Lippy argument through this. But I think just in, for the sake of the idea of similars and how Hahnemann explains them, it's the footnote to 25 that is so beautiful and powerful. Like, for example, he says, he's talking about the stronger similar as the curative factor. In other words, that, that's the point. Yeah, similar Something is that cure. Is stronger, mm-hmm. similar. Yep. Will uh, diminish or annihilate the thing that was previously there. Always. And what I love was that he didn't just say, "I give you cinchona and it cures symptoms of malaria." He says, "How can luminous Jupiter disappear in the early morning from the optic nerve of the beholder?" Jupiter vanishes from sight because the optic nerve is acted upon by a stronger, very similar impinging potence, the brightness of the breaking day. Come on. We need some violin music. We totally do. Or Hammond organ. How, (laughs) yes. How does one effectively placate olfactory nerves that have been insulted by foul odors? All right, there's a decomposing carcass of a groundhog somewhere outside the front door. By snuff, which seizes the sense of smell in a similar but stronger way. Neither music nor pastries can cure this olfactory disgust because they relate to other senses. This is the Febreze concept. (laughs) Right? This is the Febreze footnote. 25.2. 25.2. I call Febreze a migraine in a can. Mm. Oh my gosh. But that's the idea. The only way to get rid of one smell is with a stronger smell. Do you think it works in supermarkets? Because I've often had this, because <laughs> we're clear we're talking about the same thing, and that is that uh, it, it, the principle of, the, the fundamental principle of homeopathy is similar. It determines the choice of the remedy we make. But this is a different point because the how it works is to create something that's stronger and similar, which annihilates the totality of symptoms that are existing naturally. I mean, when I say the word naturally, because that's the natural disease in the body. Right. right? Yep. So, well, but right here, he's you, using the metaphor. We'll go to the natural diseases. Well, so here, my question is this. Have you ever seen a parent have a tantrum to stop a kid having a tantrum? You mean when they try to scream louder? Yeah, that one in the supermarket. You know when your kid <laughs> has taken down the thing of Huggies, and, or they've all, <laughs> they've all fallen down, or the tins of tomatoes, uh-huh. mayonnaise, and created a kerfuffle, 
And the Herb, that we've got an incident in aisle six. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> it. And I am thinking of a relative of yours as well in this instance. <laughs> but let's say, you know, the child is somewhat disciplined and then lies down on the floor and has a full-on tantrum. Uh-huh. Are we clear? That's what we're talking about. That's have what you, you're have, talking about. Have you, have you ever seen a parent have a bigger tantrum in that moment? I am not at liberty to answer that question. It doesn't work. <laughs> so that's the thing. When kids are yelling, if you yell louder, it doesn't work. Mm. It's, it's uh, or at least not from the, you know, the multitudes of experience that I've had <laughs> right. in this regard. So I, I, I'm intrigued. Maybe my metaphor is, is wrong because the examples you gave there are perfect. But does it work all the time? Stronger, similar. Heavy metal music for teenage kids. They have to listen to that music. In, um, in the Waldorf world, they, um, the teachers, you know, the, the same teachers with the class from first grade through eighth grade. I mean, in, in the, you know, intended circumstances. Exactly. Or that's why I can put a little <laughs> caveat. But um, they determined <sighs> everything down to the color of the classroom based on the temperament of the children. Oh. And when one of my kids was in primary school, um, they were in quite a robust class. Um, and they painted the room like tomato red. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Right? So a very sort of choleric class and a very choleric color. Right? And I thought, at first I walked in there and I was like, that's a recipe for disaster. But, you know, but that was the idea. It was a similar... I mean, it's kind of like being melancholic and listening to sad music. How did the cunning warrior drown out the piteous cries of the wounded soldiers in the ears of the compassionate bystanders by the high-pitched sounds of the fife paired with a noisy drum roll? Yeah. Yeah. How did he cover the distant thunder of the enemy's cannon, which aroused fear in the army by the deeply reverberating boom of the great drum? He could not have obtained such results by reprimanding the regiment or distributing glittering uniforms. <laughs> glittering uniforms doesn't get rid of terror. I'm having to hold this book a very long way away from my face. It's called Old People Eyes. You need Old People Eyes. Mm-hmm. So mourning and grief are extinguished in the emotional mind of um, on hearing the account of another still greater bereavement. Mm. The negative effects of the all too lively joy are removed by coffee. That's an interesting one, isn't it? That's an interesting transition one. Is that the la- that's the last example, isn't it? No, it's no, not because not. then it goes on to the German peoples. Oh, the German people, right? How could I forget? A people like the Germans, who for centuries were gradually. This is really interesting because this is kind of the people think Germany. They think modern Germany. You know, Germany from First and Second World War, but Germany didn't exist until 1877. Right. So is, is he talking about like the Saxons at this point? Well, the, he's talking about there was a Germ- German-ness, but there was no country uh-huh. that expressed that. There was Prussia, Saxony, right. Schleswig, Holstein, something. Listen to you go. Anyway, people like the Germans who for centuries were gradually more and more degraded into willless apathy and subservient sense of slavery first had to be beaten up by Napoleon, the conqueror of the West. Wow. Until the situation became intolerable. Only in this way was their self-disparagement overtuned and lifted so they felt their human dignity again and raised their heads for the first time as German men are new. Interesting, huh? 
It's totally interesting. So, what do you I mean, it's it's very interesting that he's making some connections to a larger sort of psycho-spiritual um, uh, impression that a homeopathic remedy can afford. So it kind of goes to that the the level of complexity that we deal with with within homeopathy, right? The emphasis on the mental and emotional, the the changing of a person's temperament or disposition, the constitutional versus the chronic remedy. I mean, the the there is so much nuance to this, and I think I never really thought about that footnote from that perspective of the idea of the German people. And do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they I'm gonna have to. A, they needed a stronger similar. They needed a stronger similar, but I. But the implication there is that the medicine has the capacity for, to have that effect. I mean, maybe that's. I'll have to look at this again through Kent's idea, because we always talk about Kent, James Tyler Kent, and his Swedenborgian influence, and the ways in which the effect on the will, right? It, you know, it. it Kent talks about how how deeply a homeopathic remedy acts is such that it can change a person's will. And I mean, we see this. My my favorite example, and, and I apologize if it's repetition on the podcast, but it was when I was working in the outreach clinic in New York, and there was a um, one of the people that I worked with there was a guy who, I mean, just the stories that the stories that we heard working there. But this one guy had grown up in in such horror. You know, like the worst that you could imagine. Murders. Uh, he saw his brother be murdered. I mean, he had, you know, years of addiction. He was incarcerated. Rikers Island twice, right? So, like, some really serious um, life situations. And the way that he dealt with it was um, he was he was quite melancholic. And that on the anniversaries of significant days, he would drink himself into a stupor and would, like, pass out in the street, fall down the subway stairs. I mean, he really got himself into some trouble and he got a homeopathic remedy and he comes in for his first follow-up and he said first of all he came came running across the soup kitchen where our office was in the backup and I thought oh god this is either going to be really bad or really good and he picked me up and he said wow and then he (laughs) said is it possible that that whatever you gave me made me cry and then he said I haven't had a drink since then. And this was, I mean, you know, that's, that's amazing. And that really hits the level of the will, doesn't it? The, you know, oh, being able to move past what could be a very significant, you know, like sort of physiological addictive process to get over. He quit smoking shortly thereafter as well. I mean, people say quitting smoking can be as difficult as heroin. I guess for people with that susceptibility anyway I believe it so this so this idea though that it's like he's making a transition right to from a very physical luminous jupiter to the olfactory nerve so both in the nervous system then you've got the ear it's all the senses right he's got the 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 sounds of war and then the emotions mourning and grief and then joy, right? The all too lively joy overcome by drinking coffee. So he's going into, you know, the having an effect of substance and then into people, the German people. And that's, I, I never really thought about this footnote quite so 
or quite in this way. And then he guides us to that extraordinary conclusion, and that is that the homeopathic remedy is not what we think it is. I, I'm amazed by these folks that say, you know, positively cured my cough, or that dose of that remedy, it really helped me. And it's, and it's quietly to myself, I'm going, no, it didn't. There was a key. Yeah. That, was the right message that pushed against your vital force and it was a stronger similar. <laughs> I mean, yeah, and you do all that in a, in a nanosecond. Yeah, well, I mean, to, but, you know, even people that are affectionate towards homeopathy right. still think of it in conventional allopathic well, totally. terms I mean, like this cause and effect. Yeah. The cause and effect is not the cause and effect when we get, an, when we get a, 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 a response, a, a, a medical clinical response. In homeopathy, because the homeopathic remedy is, can I say it? I, I'm almost nervous to say it, a stronger, similar, artificial disease in a bottle. That's yeah, what a homeopathic remedy is. Yeah, I shouldn't have said it. Like Hagrid. No, I shouldn't have said that. Shouldn't have said oh, that. I shouldn't have said that. More like Iris Bell, who I call the intermediary with the force, okay. when she talks about hormesis. Well, a homeopathic remedy, therefore, is a signal. That's it. I prefer that. Yeah. I mean, signal. that's not the language Hahnemann uses, but... Well, well it's, maybe it's it, interesting because, I mean, she's getting closer towards uh, answering the question of yeah. how homeopathy might work um, using, you know, that, that, um, that simple model. The homeopathic remedy is a signal in a, in a complex... What is a complex adaptive system? Adaptive that's right. System, yeah. and, and what I love about that explanation is it does so many things. This is why... People like Iris Bell, who are just like, they're so. She's so. Oh, she's answering these incredibly complex questions with these seemingly simple answers that actually, ha- it's like a tree that has roots that go down so deeply, right? Because I use that example when I'm teaching about autoimmune disease, to look at the ways that. So so we we better um, explain more about what this quote from Iris Bell that we're talking about, or one explanation she uses is basically that the homeopathic remedy doesn't solve the problem. It, it, it's a, a message to what we would call the vital force. It's the right message. It's the right message yeah. to the vital force that then responds. The ailing vital force of the organism that's ill. That's yeah. right. Yeah. It responds. And it, it can only respond commensurate with the energy available to the organism, mm. right? To me, that starts so to the then talk about... the vital force. Exactly. It's mm. all about what the organism can do. This is when people say a homeopathic remedy allows the body to heal itself. I, I mean, technically... Okay, I'm, I'm okay with that one. Yeah. But when they say positilla fixed, that, yeah. that's not Yeah, right. totally. Yeah. But this idea, though, is that the remedy... See, this is where, this is where we get into another level of complexity because there's energy and there's matter. Yeah. And so the the message is an energetic message, right? Which is different than when you're using a crude substance. So the prepar- the preparation of homeopathic remedy, right? When Hahnemann says he's releasing spirit from matter, is that preparatory process is a whole bunch of stuff that we won't get into now. But what's happening is that the energy of the substance is what is, you know, eliciting a response from, from the vital force. Well, the thing is, that the vital force has to have enough energy to respond. And this is where this is where the skills in posology come in because each homeopathic potency, 
each preparation that we have of a medicine, whether it be a 6X to a 50M to an LM5, yeah, they are, they're all different vibrations and you're matching that vibration. And the, the vital force then needs to have the, you know, it needs to be able to respond. Well, a message that is asking for a response that is not commensurate with the amount of vitality available for the healing process can either do nothing, we say it does nothing, we hope it does nothing, or can be too much, can really knock a person off. Mm. But there, but this is something that I think Iris's explanation helps us to sort of open the door to, is, is the ways in which different homeopaths use remedies. Now, of course, you need to be able to use them in lots of ways to be effective, but sometimes you need to treat with a much more refined dose. But if the pathology is, it has become material, then sometimes a more material dose is needed in order to get the response. Do you know what I'm saying? Does that explanation make sense? Uh, yeah, it does. I, I don't think, I mean, for me, the accuracy or the closeness of the remedy is far more important than the closeness of the uh, pathology. See, I would have said that until really testing out the ways in which fine modulation of the delivery of the remedy, based on Hahnemann's fifth edition inter interpretation can make a huge difference, right? This is the, the idea that we often change the remedy when we need to change the potency or the delivery, right? How many cases, remember I taught that, uh, it was at some conference where I taught a bunch of cases which were cases where people had gone to another homeopath who had, had actually perfectly good remedy recommendations, mm -hmm. but their, but their um, posology was sort of limited. It was kind of fourth edition, give a dose and wait style, whereas had we that person put that remedy in water and given it over time or switched up from a C potency to an LM or the other direction, they might've gotten so much more mileage out of the remedy. Mm -mm -mm. Right. And that is, I mean, that's something that I don't think we do. And I, for a lot of reasons, many of which we've talked about, but one of them is that I think that many people kind of get confused with how we prescribe for acutes versus how mm -hmm. you unravel deep chronic stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, one of the things, if I'm tracking this conversation, and I'm pretty impressed that the fact that it's gone in some wiggly lines, but I'm still here. Yeah. We've spoken Well, that's about, a relief. I, I know. But we've spoken about how Hahnemann gave some kind of... Uh, I'm going to say metaphors for the general public to kind of try and describe mm -hmm. the mechanism of action. But he actually then went on and said, every physician will know what I'm talking about. Th to me, this is the best thing right. of all. Because, and then he gives a whole lot of examples of where conditions historically have been and well, he, I think he uses the word annihilated. I'm not sure yeah. in his translation. Yeah. Are annihilated by the arrival of a stronger similar. That's right. And so a stronger similar in a medical context is observable when a, a, a person with an existing condition has that condition disappear um, or when the new epidemic or when the new symptom picture comes along. And he gives a truckload of examples. I mean, I imagine that 
his references, like to Sidonim Scarlatina, you know, he would have been reading this stuff in the in the Twitter of the day. He would have been yeah. reading these in the journals. In the journals, in, in Hufflin's journals. journals. And yeah. he's so well-referenced. Actually, I, the reason that I was grabbing my computer when you were getting set up is because this is... These are the set of examples that I used in my thesis to describe homeopathy. So, so I used the so the moons of Jupiter and that right. So, um, uh, okay. So Hahnemann determined beyond similarity, the medicine must represent a stronger force than the disease itself, with examples both from the realms of nature and disease. Yep. Yeah. And so then I go the Similla principle at play in the natural world and luminous Jupiter and so forth, and then. Um, coming through to the postulate of medical cure via the application of a stronger similar, um, giving examples from orthodox sources. And I think that's really important because Hahnemann was drawing on the information that his detractors would rely on. So he's using their arguments, not against them, but to bring them in. So a severe chronic disease fends off a moderate chronic disease. Yeah, he says... um, a new, stronger disease resulted in the cure of an existing symptom or set of symptoms. Smallpox, a disease Hahnemann acknowledges to be consistent in its symptom expression, exemplifies this assertion. Symptoms such as, quote, violent eye inflammations, even to the point of blindness, and, quote, testicular swellings, quote, dysentery-like bowel movements, and, quote, and cough, have been cured in patients who subsequently fell ill with smallpox. In other words, smallpox as a stronger disease would result in the annihilation and therefore cure of any similar pre-existing symptoms. Right. The examples I've got here, scurvy fends off the plague. Yep. Eczema fends off the plague. Rachitis fends off smallpox. Wait, eczema fends off the plague. Yeah, point three. And the reference is Larry, two R's, memoirs and observations, description. Larry was um, Larry's ambulance corps. He was a doctor in Napoleon's army. Uh, Oh, yeah, Yeah. a a description of Egypt. Hello. Hello. (laughs) Listen to you go. Got something out of that education. Memoirs and observations from Larry. Yeah. All right, these are the quotes. It's really interesting. And so, you know, he's not... Hanuman's just not making stuff up. I mean, no, he's no. referencing those observations from physicians, which had obviously been reported and come down the line. And it goes on and on and on. I mean, aphorisms 36, 7, 8. He's talking about examples of similar disease and also dissimilar disease right. having an effect. Just hammering home the point, he talks about Manger, Hunter, and Rainey, all reported reactions of smallpox being suspended by measles. Now, suspended is different than curative because suspended is a stronger disease that is not curative. So this is the point where Hahnemann's saying two diseases cannot be sort of um, active in the body at the same time, but one can suspend another. I mean, an example that I like to use is pregnancy as a stronger dissimilar disease will often suspend people's chronic diseases. So but not always. And that's actually a clue to the sort of state of the pregnancy. But um, you hear all these stories of people who say, oh, I'd be pregnant forever because I don't have any of my rheumatological symptoms, right? So sometimes getting pregnant, a stronger dissimilar disease will suspend the chronic condition prevalent before the person got pregnant. And then it comes back. And then it comes back postpartum. That's your eggplant story, right? (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My eggplant story. I got pregnant. And the first thing that happened is I developed a disgust for eggplant, which I love. Um, 
and to the point where um, I used to go to this restaurant on a Friday, and I would always get an eggplant parm, you know, being an Italian girl. And I stopped ordering it, and the waitress whispered to me, are you pregnant? And Isn't I was like, amazing? oh, my gosh. And that's the thing. And I and the minute I had Ben, I ordered an eggplant parm. My dad brought it to the birth center. <laughs> Hilarious. Yeah, it was really good. And delicious. And delicious. Oh, that's what I want tonight for dinner. But isn't it interesting that that's um, mm, eggplant palm? Wouldn't that be good? I totally lost my train of thought. That's okay. It's a worthwhile diversion. Are we, are we eating in or eating out? Let's discuss. <laughs> I do have three nice eggplant in the fridge. But I love it because it it culminates. It's all culminating in aphorisms 23, uh, 43, 44, and 45. Um, two similar diseases can neither fend off one another nor suspend one another so that the older disease comes again after the new one has run its course. Nor can two similar diseases exist next to one another in the same organism or form some sort of double complicated disease. Aphorism 45? Yes. No! no. Exclamation mark. <laughs> That's where I like to stand on the desk and say, Nine! 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 Two diseases differing as to mode, but similar in their manifestations and actions and the sufferings and symptoms they cause, always and everywhere annihilate one, annihilate one another as soon as they meet in the organism. That is, the stronger disease annihilates the weaker one. Always. Always. But then... Unconditionally. Right. Every time. No questions. End of story. Except when you get to a complicated disease. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, and sorry, were you just having a moment just, of the always? Fair. And so, therefore, therefore, what is homeopathy? Homeopathy is introducing into the body a stronger, similar, artificial disease that's made from something in nature. Disease pattern. S- I think we should say pattern because it's okay, regardless yeah. of causation. Because it's weird to say a homeopathic remedy is a disease in a bottle. I mean, but Hahnemann does say that, and I think it gets... It's, I found it really confusing when I was... A student or a new homeopath, but but I I would I would modify it, and I wonder I'm supposed to talk with Wenda soon, Wenda O'Reilly, and she's been working on her um, cleaning up her translation or going back and revisiting, I should say, her translation, and I'm I, that's one of the questions I want to ask her about. Oh, the or chronic diseases. Well, both. She studied Old German after, gosh, for a couple of years, um, in order to be able to refine the translation, but. But I think, because Hahnemann says about how it is, um, uh, (laughs) sorry, I got distracted because Al pulled out a bookmark from my, um, from my organon and it is, um, yeah, it's St. Anthony. Yeah. A little prayer card (laughs) as a bookmark. Have you seen these before? No, I have a few of them. There's some in here. I don't know where I got them from. my computer. Yeah. No, behind the computer. Um, but don't lose that. What page is it on? What's it marking? No, 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 it's right there. Yeah. Um, but the, this idea, because Hahnemann talks about, and this is something else that I think is really key, because in, in a time where we are very much connected to disease nomenclature, much like happened in Hahnemann's time, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Al just took a sip of his tea and was so conscious about how he was going to swallow and not slurp. Slurp. People, thank you. You're welcome. Yes. I've been shamed into changing my ways. You know, sometimes that's what it takes. <laughs> sometimes a little shaming is the similimum. Okay. So, um, 
I love it. What? But this idea of disease nomenclature, right? Mm. That Hahnemann says, you know, you're better off to say a type of St. Vitus dance, a type of whatever, right? As opposed to, I have this disease. And, and one of the things that is, I think gets confusing for us, even an experienced homeopath, is we start to think about these diseases, and especially when we think of diseases related to pathophysiology, right? Because you know, we get really strict with our students about you need to choose a remedy that has the appropriate affinity to it rather than just the, you know, the ex- symptom expression. But at the end of the day, that's true. And yet Hahnemann says, you know, regardless of regardless of the causation of the disease, basically like you, now I'm kind of diverting down a little path, but you, the complex of symptoms are not married to the disease, the named condition, except in certain diseases for which we have, you know, hundreds of years of history in the, in the replication of it. And he calls those the fixed miasmatic diseases. They're things we would often call the childhood diseases like measles and, Mm -hmm. and mumps and, and so forth. Although he puts whooping cough in that. Does he? Mm -hmm. Whooping. You said whooping. What do you say? Hooping. 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 You can say hooping. That's the way you say it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to call it pertussis. All right. So interesting, uh, Exploration. Is there anything else I want to say? I've asked my question about stronger similar. That the supermarket situation was one I wanted to hear you talk about because Hahnemann is super clear, right? Homeopathy yeah. works because of a stronger similar disease, and but that's d- a universal law. And there's that that just one question of the tantrum in the supermarket. It, but it. That doesn't I've mean seen I'm a bad it work. Well, I've seen it work. Uh, yeah. But I think it works if. That's not the norm. If you don't, if you don't yell at a child <laughs> on the regular, and oh. they act up, and you raise your voice, okay. then you know. But Italian mothers perfect the art of the eye. Side eye comes from Italian mothers, you know. And also, and that's not a side eye. That's a bit of a. I don't know what you're doing. Now you hurt yourself with that face. <laughs> that's why your mother says, "Don't do that. You're going to stay that way." Um, but well, my mum would say that uh, don't do that. The weather might change, and you'll stay that way. Oh, the weather might change. Well, you're yeah. from New Zealand. That makes sense. <laughs> You'd never say that in you know, I don't know, New Jersey. Right. Could take a while. But <laughs> they definitely said. Did anybody ever say like don't cross your eyes because if someone hit you in the back, they would stay that way? No, don't cross your eyes because you might stay like that. <laughs> yeah. No hitting anyone in the back. See, we're very, not a violent country. No. Except on the rugby field. In which case, it's it's stronger, all- similar. Totally. Because, you know. Mm. All right. Um, very we, good. I believe it's time to go meet Amy Lansky. Oh, my gosh. In one hour. Love it. One hour. We have, um, for people who are, you know, thinking about homeopathy school, one of the things that um, I feel really lucky about is that because we've been around the block a few times, you and me, we've gotten <laughs> to know some people um, who write good books and uh, they like to come and talk to our students. So that's a, that's a little side, Benny, for our students. And I have to say that um, everybody's super excited to meet Amy, who's lovely. Yeah. Um, I used to get a box of her books delivered to my office when I was in person. I would give them to my client, to new clients. Yeah. Did you ever do that? Did you? Uh, I thought about it, but then I went, no, I can't afford that. Uh, I was not doing so well. 
I don't know that I was doing so well. I just felt like they really, it really helped people. Mm. It was so good. I mean, she's a rocket scientist. You know, that's cred. Mm. Anyway, I'm excited. So we have one hour. I'm counting down. All, All right, right, folks. folks. Uh, <laughs> see, we'll get that at the same time. Well, because I was imitating you. See you later. <laughs> see you later, everybody. <laughs> AEG is changing the face of homeopathy education by raising the bar through rigorous academics and unparalleled clinical training delivered live through the soulful use of cutting-edge technology. AEG prepares its students to become fully rounded homeopathic practitioners from anywhere in the world. Apply today at AHE.online. to let the cat out who we think is excited because there's so much activity happening on our property right now not the least of which is the groundhog that Alistair caught yesterday in the trap the one that our dog trapped in a cinder block (laughs) in front of our house and now there's a big orange cat outside of my office rolling in the catnip this is a cat I don't know he's got a collar on he must have heard from cats throughout the land of the amount of catnip in our yard. So it's become cat stoner paradise over here. (laughs) Anyway.